Lord, today, the gravity of what we're going to talk about is weighty. I pray today that by your spirit, you would speak, encourage, convict, strengthen each of these people standing here today, Lord. Only in a way that you can do would you open their minds and their spirits to receive your words. Quicken them, plant them deep within their hearts and may they grow and bear much fruit. And all the people said, Amen. God bless you. Would you take out your notes? If you're visiting for the first time, you might need the notes because I tend to get a bit excited. I go quite quickly sometimes. So I've given you some notes if you're visiting for the first time. I'm so glad that you came. And I just encourage you to follow along because you, will, you can use these notes this week. Mark my words, if you want to use these, you can use them this week. Because some of your friends that you hang out with tomorrow morning, they've got some tough questions. That may be a barrier for them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk about, in my humble opinion, probably the most audacious thing that Jesus ever said. The most audacious, in your face. And he said a lot of outrageous things, actually. This is a guy who got up and said, you've got to lose your life. That's lose to gain it. Not too much about gaining there up front. He says, if you want that, you need to do this first. He said, you've got to love your enemies. That is tough. I find that hard. Maybe you do too. Then he says, pray for those who persecute you, who make your life hell. Pray for them. Don't wimp out. Pray for them. He said things like, it's better to give than to receive. Now that goes against all of our fleshly nature. He said all kinds of outlandish things that cut across the grain of our basic human nature. And I want to suggest to you today that they pale into insignificance compared to this next statement. The most outrageous, the most politically incorrect statement that could ever have been said and come off the lips of Jesus, I believe, are found in John chapter 14, verse 6. And he says this, unequivocally, very clearly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father No man or woman comes to the Father but by me. Now some of your friends who may be thinking about or investigating Christianity might find this very unique statement a little hard to swallow. It is. And by the way, just in case it's just you think that's just one quote, time doesn't permit this morning. I do have some notes. If you want to drill down further in your small groups during the week, you can pick them up right on your communication mag message application guide and we'll send you those by email. Here's a couple more that just hint in the same direction. Acts 2.12. 
I haven't put that on your outline, but it says this. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name. That's what we sung about, that beautiful name. No other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. And if we still miss that, let's move along to John. 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has life. Here's the antithesis. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty clear. Now, some of your friends, upon hearing such statements, may think that, well, Christianity could be, and you Christians are quite narrow-minded to say that. Yeah, would that be fair? They could easily say that. But the fact of the matter is this. Either, one, those statements are true, which has implication, or, conversely, they are false, which also has implication. There's only two choices here. Now, maybe you've been a follower today of Jesus Christ for quite some years. And you know if somebody confronted you who's not yet a Christian with, well, why does Jesus make these outrageous statements? You're not quite so sure what you'd say. Maybe that's you today. Now, I personally believe the closer we study this particular statement, the more sense it actually makes. Actually, this single sentence is one of the most important bits of information on the entire planet for you personally. Think about that. The most important. So why is it so controversial? Because this statement gets after three key myths that many of your friends have about Christianity. It sticks it in their face. Here they are. First myth that this statement gets after and why people get upset is because they believe, your friends believe, many of the people that you work with tomorrow basically believe that all religions are basically the same. This is no way. It says no And that affronts them with that. Some of your friends think that all religions basically teach the same thing. So it doesn't really matter by implication what you believe, because whatever, heck, all roads lead to God. That's what they think. All spiritual paths, in other words, lead up the mountain to God in one way or another. (laughs) Which reminds me of a funny conversation I was having this week with a certain young lady who was in a board meeting. And they had these presenters come in and some of them were quite new and a bit dithery. You know, it's like Martin, some of the new ones come in to present. They were a bit nervous and shaking the boots. Well, the most hilarious thing was the person presented in this board meeting, you may imagine you this, never been before, was so bamboozled by it, picked up their things after, says, thank you very much. After the questions, walked out, opened the door and went straight into a closet. <laughs> but that wasn't the funny thing. They stayed there for 20 minutes. And everybody else knew it was a closet. (laughs) I have some empathy for walking into that closet. Staying there, that's another issue. 
Why did they stay there? Clearly the wrong way. Was it pride? True story. John 14, 6. Well, yeah. By the way, let me just before I get to that verse, that person genuinely believed they were walking out of that meeting, but he was in a very definite dead end. Again, point, pride kept in there. John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. With this one startling assertion, startling. Nobody else has ever made that. Jesus Christ boldly takes Christianity and firmly puts it in a separate class by itself. Yes? Now, if the only real path to God is through Jesus Christ, if that's true, then the reality is Christianity cannot be reconciled with any other religion. Can't do it. Doesn't balance. Impossible. Acts 4.12 says this, salvation is found in no one else. Theologians call this Christian, a Christian particularism or exclusivism. For there is no other name under heaven, that covers a lot of territory, given to men by which we must be saved. That's why we sung about that precious name today. Now the uniqueness of Christianity is rooted in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He is unlike any other religious leader. None. I've studied 13 of the major ones. None compared to him. Listen, for example, a quick praise of what some other religious leaders said. And then let's compare it and contrast it to what Jesus said, just to set the tone. Other religious say, follow me and I will show you the way to find the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Don't have to go looking, I'm it. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the way to salvation. Jesus says, I am the way to salvation. Other religious leaders say, follow me and you can become enlightened. Jesus said, hang on, I am the light of the world. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the many doors that can lead to God. Jesus says, hold on, hold on, I am the door. I am the door. Not one of many, the door. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you how to find spiritual food. In Matthew 4, 4, he says, I am the bread of life. Your spiritual sustenance comes from him. So spot the difference. People have tried to harmonise different religions around the world, but they are irreconcilable. Differences between Christianity on the one hand and other belief systems on the other. We stand alone. Now, as I studied world religions, what I found is that all other religions other than Christianity are based on the idea of people need to do something through their struggling and striving to find the good favour of God. Period. Check it out. I'm giving you the cliff notes. So, if you're a Buddhist, you know, the Tibetan prayer wheel, 
When it comes in, you've got to do that, or you've got to go on a pilgrimage. Some religions say you've got to give alms to the poor, avoid eating certain foods, you've got to pray in a certain way, or you've got to go through a series of reincarnations. That type of thing. Now, Jesus taught the exact opposite of all of that, what these other religions taught. He said, nobody could earn their way to God, so you might as well stop trying. Stop it. That's what grace is about. We talked about that for the last eight weeks. Now, two things that are very consistent with our human experience. First of all, all of us in this room know that we're all guilty of wrongdoing. You and I know that to be true. Absolutely. Not one person here will claim that they are perfect. Now, Jesus said, though, our wrongdoing separates us from God. Why? Because our wrong has created a gulf of separation between us and God, and God by His nature, He's a righteous judge, which we also sang about today. See, the reason why we sing is not to have happy melodies, is to actually declare the truth. God is our righteous judge. We communicate, and if you miss out on some of that singing, I'd encourage you to get here a little earlier so those words can deeply penetrate your spirit. But out of his love for us, Jesus Christ voluntarily voluntarily offered his own son. God offered his son to take our place. And God by his nature is a righteous judge. His son paid the penalty for our sins so that he took what we deserve so that we wouldn't have to take that penalty. And when we receive his sacrifice on our behalf, we become reconciled with God forever. And that's what Christianity says. Now there's a difference between good works and grace. All other religions spell do, D-O. I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do the other. Because of all teach that people have to do something. Rituals and rules and regulations to make themselves mm, acceptable to God. The problem is, nobody knows how many of those things you have to do and for how long until you get over the line. That's a problem. To please God. Christianity, on the other hand, says this. You can never do enough to earn your way into heaven and Christianity is spelt done. It's done. Jesus Christ has done what we could never do. And he lived a sinless life, went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world and he said at the end of it, It is done. It is finished. I've paid the bill for the sins of this world. And all that's left for you to do is to receive this free gift of forgiveness and mercy and grace. So the Bible says this in Titus 3, 5. God saved us. It was not because of any good works that we ourselves had done, but because of his own mercy that he saved us. Now, that is not to hear, my friend, uh, it's to say, my friends, that Christians don't do good works. No, no, they do. But it's not to try and make themselves right with God. It's after they receive the beautiful grace of Jesus and they go, I can't believe that I've been so blessed. And they're so overwhelmed by gratitude of what God has done, it's very natural for them to express that love and gratitude towards God and other people by doing good things. So, other religions are irreconcilable with Christianity in terms of how you become reconciled with God. There are other majors of difference as well. Christianity says there's only one God, 
eternally existing in three persons, which you sang about tonight, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hinduism, on the other hand, says everything is God. This iPad's God, well, just to some people. <laughs> this is God. The chair that you're sitting on is God. It's called pantheism. It says that you are God too, by the way. Crazy. Islam denies that Jesus was God, denies um, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Buddha, he wasn't even sure if God existed. Don't go there. So just remember that when somebody you know, presses you on that. So you can see that all these other beliefs are at direct odds with each other and they can't all be true at the same time. They contradict each other. So conclusion for this part is that all religions are not basically the same. That is a myth. And if you, if you ever find yourself in a conversation with your friends about that, you need to demonstrate that Christianity is logically separated from the other religions. Now, other religious leaders may have wise sayings, but Jesus Christ, because he was the perfect son of God, only he is qualified to offer himself as payment for our wrongdoing. No other religious leader ever claimed or pretended to do that. Didn't even come close. So, it does matter which path you follow in your spiritual journey, lest you end up in the cupboard. See, Jesus' words dispel that myth that all paths lead to God. He said, only through me. Two, the second myth that this gets after is all religions have equal claims to truth. If your friend at work, your neighbour, can see, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I will give you that point, Martin. Christianity is different to the other religions. They could still come back at you and say, well, it's different, but it's one among many. It's just as valid as any other religion. Even if there are differences, they all have equal claims on the truth. So, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. Now, because we live in a pluralistic, tolerant society, we kind of figure people can believe whatever the heck they want to believe. Hmm. Now, let me be clear here. Tolerance in personal relationships is a virtue. But tolerance and truth is a travesty. Two plus two equals four, period. No tolerance for anything else. Doesn't equal 17. Now some people make the enormous, the enormously erroneous assumption that because the law of our country protects everybody's belief, therefore all beliefs must be true and equal. That is not the truth. How do we know that Jesus Christ was telling the truth? The reality is this, only Jesus backed his claims with unique credentials and gave himself unique credibility through those. Lots of credentials. I'll just mention quickly four of them, which you may want to note down, which I didn't put in your outline. First, Jesus validates his claim to being the one and the only Son of God because Jesus Christ is the only person in history 
of the world to fulfill 60 specific ancient prophecies from over 300 different references, centuries in advance. Nobody has ever been able to do that. Now, if you want some more detail on that, it's on the outline, or you can go back to a series I did about a year ago called Reasons for Believing. You can look at those prophecies, and there's no way he could have intentionally fulfilled as many as these. For example, fairly hard for me to jack up my own place of birth or my ancestry or the country I'd be born in. Me, I can't manipulate that. One ancient prophecy predicted, for example, the exact moment that it would appear on the planet. This is the, the people talk about the singularity in the Big Bang. I believe this is the greatest singularity when he appeared on this earth. The exact moment when the Messiah would be revealed and which we would be filled. We couldn't have arranged, he couldn't have arranged that. How he was put to death. It was predicted that he'd be crucified when Romans hadn't even invented crucifixion. Nailed on a cross. And he fulfilled these prophecies against astronomical odds. I haven't got time to go on that this morning. Again, the detail is in one of my other series. So, that's the first way. Through prophecy, you've got to figure that out. Look at the mathematical odds behind that. I like math because it's, it's definitive. Second, he validates his claim by his unprecedented character. He was sinless. He led a sinless life. Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever observed this kind of phenomenon that the closer you get to know somebody, they look all perfect from a distance, but the closer you get to know them, you start to discover things. Have you ever found that phenomenon? <laughs> Whoever it is, maybe at work, not looking anyway, don't poke your husband or wife. So the more you get to know somebody, the more of their shortcomings you become aware of. But the opposite is true of Jesus Christ. First, his disciples were increasingly marveled at his purity, his holiness and integrity. Nobody was closer to him than Peter and John. And listen to what they said after spending three years with him very closely. John said he committed no sin and no deceit was ever found in his mouth. Can you imagine somebody living with you for three years? <laughs> I know you really well. What would they say with you? about you. Peter said this, he committed no sin, excuse me, there we go, John, he's talking about that in First Peter. Pilate, how about this one? Even his enemies, one thing your friends tell you that, but what about your enemies? If your enemies are bragging on you, that's a different issue. And I found this example particularly interesting because Pilate says in Luke 23, he says, I find no basis for charge against this man. And then even more unusual, his wife agrees with him. When do you ever get the husband and the wife agree? Here's one. Pilate's wife says, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. That's worthy of note, unusual. (laughs) So his unique character validates his claim as being the one and only way. Thirdly, he validates his claim by performing miracles. Miracles, now that's gonna get people's attention. In fact, Jesus challenges the people of his day. He says this in John 10, 37. He says, don't you even believe me? Don't even believe me unless I do miracles. In other words, anyone could claim to be the son of God. And by the way, Muhammad never did one miracle. Buddha never did one. Gandhi never did one. So, But Jesus said this, unless I do miracles, don't even believe me. That's a pretty blatant challenge. And after he did perform miracles, he did them in front of skeptics and cynics. And as a matter of fact, you can look in the books of ancient history, people that are not even in the Bible, 
who recorded, you know, Jews. Jews hated Jesus because he was a huge threat. A huge threat to their empire. The Quran of Islam even records the miracles. Roman historians who are secular record the miracles. And they all admit that Jesus did miracles. His enemies. So his ability to do the miraculous further validates his claim. Fourth, the most spectacular demonstration, of course, of Christ's deity was he's fulfilled his own prediction and three days later after he was put to death, he was resurrected from the dead. Now on 12 separate occasions, he appeared to over 500 people over 40 days, indoors and outdoors. Who else but the Son of God could spend three days in the tomb and then come forward and establish the fact that he'd returned from the dead? Now, listen to what Dr. Luke has to say in Acts 1 verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So not longer after Jesus was put to death and resurrected, just weeks after, he appears, right? In the very place he was crucified. Now that's got to cause a stir. Well, it did. It emboldened Peter from being a wimp, saying, I don't know him, to standing out in front of all these guys who are basically jihadists. And he said, listen, this is what happened. Jesus of Nazareth was a man whose divine mission was clearly shown you by the miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him. I'm quoting from Scripture. He said, you yourselves know this, his audience, because it took, right, it took place right here in front of you. So he's saying, come on. You saw what happened. You saw what we did to him. You guys did it, by the way. He, he fairly sticks it to them if you read the Scriptures. Right there. Now those people look at him and say, well... We know you're telling the truth because this is what happened. We knew Jesus too. We saw it. We know that's true. And we put them aside this. But the, the evidence for him being resurrected was so powerful that the Scriptures record this. 3,000 of them on that day turned away from their sins and put their trust in Christ and were baptised and the church was born. That's like you standing in front of 3,000 people who were absolutely completely disagreed with you, had the whole family, the whole history, way back to Moses, and all of a sudden they do a 90 degree turn and said that was completely wrong. That is a lot of persuasion and Jews are not easy to convince. They are tough. Enough though to shake them in the court on 3,000 and said what we knew before we're leaving behind because this happened. Luke also but further on, records another 5,000 Jewish Christians converting. You'll find that in Acts 4.4. You may want to go look at that. Including many priests. To get the priest to convert, that is committing almost Harry Carey. You're in serious trouble here. Why did that happen so quickly? What in the world would convince them? Why in Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism... Did this happen? Something happened that rocked their leaders. Now think about it for a moment, what it would have taken for a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. He would have to be utterly convinced because he's going to get the chop. Not the old chop, the new chop. 
You'd have to be utterly convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was God, and that he'd risen from the dead. There's no other explanation for that. Why, after refusing for years to believe, would all these Jews change their mind? And within a very short period, there was 100,000 Christians. Why? Explain that. Something spectacular happened. Something like a man raising from the dead. That'll get you going. I'm in for that. I see that. And I see him walk. I'm following. I don't care. What can you do to me? Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's a reality. Jesus didn't just claim that he's the one and only way to God. He validated his credentials and fully established his credibility. Myth number three that this gets after. And this is one you're going to hear a lot. And people are going to try and bully you with this. So I'm going to tell you up front. Their myth, they're saying that Christians are arrogant when they say Jesus is the only way to heaven. You're going to hear that. That objection. Now, if the truth of the matter was there were many ways to get to heaven and Christians were just saying, well, ours is the best of many, I could understand that statement. But that's not what Christians are saying. They are saying the truth of the matter is someone's got to pay the penalty of the obvious wrongdoing that we've committed. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be us paying in eternity or is it going to be Jesus Christ paying as our substitute? He's the only one qualified by his sinless life and his divinity to be our substitute. So here's the reality. The reality is that it's not arrogant to act upon the evidence. Christians are not being narrow-minded when they say there's only one way to the Father any more than you're not being arrogant saying two plus two is four. That is not arrogance. It's a statement of fact. If this truth of two plus two is circumvented in engineering, the inevitable result is chaos. Likewise, to compromise the claims of Christ can only lead to calamity. So the truth of the matter is we all have a terminal illness called sin. And the reason that those of us who are Christians cling to Jesus Christ is because he's the great physician. He's the only one that has the medication that can cure. We can try to scrub away our sins by doing good deeds. Ain't gonna work. It's indelible. We can try to ignore it. Well, let's just forget about that and hope it all sort of fades into the background. But it won't disappear. We can sincerely think there's another way of dealing with it, but we will be sincerely wrong. Actually, the Bible tells us very clearly, as Christians, we're to be anything but arrogant in what we believe. It says, actually, we're to be humble. Nothing wrong with being clear either. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 3, 15. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That means, by the way, point, every Christian should be able to tell people about the credibility and the credentials of Jesus Christ and why it is that he is the only hope. He's the only hope. Without Christ, there is no hope of eternal life. But notice how he says to tell people. 
He says to tell him when you're having a one-on-one conversation to do it with gentleness and to do it with respect. In other words, don't cut them off. Let them finish. We are to respect people of all cultures and all places. We're to love them, but the Bible says we are to be of humble. We are to be humble. By the way, which is what Jesus did. But we don't confuse meekness with weakness. Do not confuse that. Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. So someone said, what's a Christian? Well, another person answered, well, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're very thankful for it. Here it is. So Christianity, number one, is unique. It cannot be reconciled with any other religion. Two, it backs up its truth claims with credibility and credentials like no other. Because history was changed by Jesus Christ. All that brings us to a very commonly asked question. If Jesus is the only way, what about those who don't hear? A few thoughts that may help you respond. Big subject, little time, more study. But let me give you a few things that will help you. First, the Bible clearly declares that God puts each person in the place where they may reach out to him. Where's that? Well, take a look at Acts 17. The Bible says this. From one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And, notice this, he determined the time in history. That's what he's saying there. Set for them. Everyone, one of my sons sometimes wishes he was born a little earlier. I said, uh-uh. God actually determined the day you'd be born. He set this in history, in his plan. And he set for them the exact places. That's the geography. So he set there the time and the geography where he wanted you where they should live. God did this, why? He tells us. So that all men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Notice, people who seek him will find him. He is not far, hard to find. He's not playing cosmic hide and seek. Second, Everyone has a moral standard written in their heart. And that tells them that everyone's guilty of violating that standard. We all have a moral standard. We know that's true. Your conscience bothers you. My conscience bothers me when we've done things wrong. And that's because you have a moral standard written on on your heart. And I violate it. The Bible says the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences are bearing, also bearing witness. So, There's a sense of a moral standard. Third, everyone has enough information from observing creation to know that God exists, but people reject God anyway. They reject Him. The Bible says there's a great part to study, Romans 1 and Romans 2, but let's pick up this for a moment. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. You clearly see something, no excuse. And being understood from what has been made from creation. Well, how did this get here? How about all that ocean there? Where'd that come from? Comet? No, we've asked that just yesterday. Where'd all that water come from? We don't know. Best scientific minds in the world had no blooming clue where that came from. The best theory was it all arrived here by meteorites. They just disqualified that last week. 
We have no clue. Back to the drawing board. Bit of a problem. Where'd that come from? And by the way, where did the source of all the information? How many of you just upgraded to Windows 10? Anybody? Apart from me. All right. That's got new code. My computer runs differently now. There's new intelligence behind that. There's been some crafting and it behaves differently. But that didn't just happen. Some, where, did, where is the source information behind that? Well, as programmers. Where's the source information for making this plethora of abundant life on this planet? Where's the intelligence behind that from? It didn't just happen. Because think about it. If you're an atheist, what happened? Something produced nothing. That's idiocy. That's just plain stupid. Nothing cannot produce something because there's nothing. We're in circles. Choice. There's either a God or there isn't a God. If there isn't a God, explain this. Best explanation. Intelligence. And we went through that in my series. That Kevin knows about well. So, back to this. For since the creation... So, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is being made. That's creation. That's the cosmological argument, the ontological argument. So that men are without excuse. Can't say, God, whoa, I didn't see anything. For although they knew God, listen to this, they neither glorified him, said, wow, and as God, and they didn't give him thanks. They suppressed the truth. Don't want to know about that because if there is a God, that means I could be accountable to him. Don't even think about that because of all the things I've done. They can't face him. So we have enough information, the Bible says, from nature and creation to know his truth, yet we still reject the truth. That's a dangerous position to be in. Number four. Fourth, we also know from the Bible that every person who sincerely seeks God will find him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now the Bible says it's the Holy Spirit who first seeks us and makes it possible for us to find God in the first place. What does all this mean? It means this, that people anywhere in the world who respond to the understanding they have, who earnestly seek God, think about Cornelius. He was a God-fearing man, didn't know of Jesus yet, yet God taps a good old apostle there, roars across there, Mr. Peter, and tells him the full deal. Because he was seeking God, you'll find him. So those who earnestly seek after the one true God are going to find an opportunity to receive eternal life that God graciously provides through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, I have seen this personally in ridiculous circumstances. One illustration is a guy who I knew in India had been trained all of his life to be a mullah. And uh, he was about to be, as it were, let's put it in our terms, ordained to be commissioned as a mullah. And he went out into the mountains to pray. And he was sitting there, he was there for two weeks. In the middle of the second week, he was saying, God, I really, in the beautiful surroundings, he was, God, I really, really want to do your will. And he had a vision of somebody called Jesus who had never even heard of. I met this man. That guy gave his heart to Jesus, he became his forgiver and his leader and is now like a Paul to the Hindus. He had a, now that is unusually unbelievable, but the thing is, I know of multiple of these people I've met, eyeball to eyeball. The guy's not rich, he walks around in bare feet. And his greatest desire is that God will give him somebody else that will carry on because man, those Hindus are after him. 
And he wants somebody else who can pass it on that when he's taken out, he will continue the mission. Amazing how that works. God reached that in visions. Many, many people like that. There's something else he should, uh, should assure you too, as it does to me. And this is the thing that my heart takes great hope in. God is scrupulously fair. Scrupulously fair. The Bible says this, will the judge of the, all of the earth do right? Not, will not the judge of the earth? Of course he will. So it's comforting for me to know that every human being who's ever lived is going to be uniquely judged by God and fairly judged. Do I understand it all? Not at all. But I want to say something in a sentence which may help. Stay with me on this one sentence. While it may not be absolutely necessary for a person to have explicit faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be saved, for example, infants, well, I can know, six months old, they can't. Some mentally challenged people, some cannot. This is my conclusion. God has willed such belief to be normatively necessary. So what I mean is that people need to hear. How can they hear unless you go? How can they hear unless you tell them? We cannot escape that responsibility. So there's general revelation through nature. On the other side, the other part of this is special revelation where you get the exact gospel. God has called you and me to deliver that. Because if you think of the implication, if, it, if you could just mainly get through through general revelation, the best thing we could ever do is shut down every church, shut down, every, burn every Bible in the world because then, there'd be, then they wouldn't hear. And then they couldn't be held accountable. Be careful. There's some good thinking to go on behind that. More study notes back there. So in summary, God has willed that specific revelation is normatively necessary. So, those who say to God their whole lives and they suppress the truth and they exchange the truth of God for lies and say, I don't want to be with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. When they die, God will respect that choice because God will never violate you. God will not violate your will and save you against your will. He's, not, he's going to honour that choice. So here in East Auckland, by the way, let's get back to where we are. We're not isolated. And if you'd never ever heard the message of Jesus Christ before today, you have now heard it. So you are now accountable for what you have heard. The question is, what are you going to do with that? First of all, if you haven't heard before, you have now. And if you have heard, who are you going to share that with? Because Jesus said this. And actually, the Bible says in 1, um, John 1, 12, it's not enough to just believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We've got to take a step of faith and receive him as our forgiver and our leader. He said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light. So the Bible says you need to take action, steps of faith. You need to put your trust in the one with the credentials and the credibility and to receive him as your forgiver and your leader. Now, when you do that, and as you grow in faith, you will find out what I and millions of other Christians have found. Jesus is the way. And Him is all of our hope. He is the way to a life of purpose. Because think about this. Without God, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. It's random, meaningless. You come and you go, boof, it's over. Without God, life does not make sense. 
And most of all, Jesus is our life. He's a truth and He gives you wisdom to deal with everyday life and the turbulent times that come our way. He alone can give you that eternal life. It's not based on your qualifications. It's based on you accepting His invitation. Let's pray. Father, for those today that are sitting here that have already accepted you and taken that step of faith, that you are our forgiver and our leader. We're so grateful for providing a way for us that you reached out, Jesus, that you rescued us. We're so glad that you love us so much. And Father, for those who have believed maybe for years that Jesus is your son, but they've never had a life change because they've never acted on that belief. They've never received Him as their forgiver and their leader. I pray in this exact moment that in their minds that they would say, Lord Jesus, I receive You. I receive what You did for me on the cross right now. And I pray Your Holy Spirit would apply it to my life. I receive You as a forgiver of my sins. My past my present and my future. And I receive you as my leader. I want to follow you. I want to grow to know you in this world and the world to come. Father, we know that every person who prays that prayer in faith, even at this moment, your son is loving them and leading them away from everlasting separation to a place of safety forever. And we thank you for that. This week, Lord, help us to be alert, to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, looking for the people that you came to save and that you've been working in their hearts through difficulties often. Father, give us the ability to sense when we need to just listen. And other times when we need to answer tough questions, help us, Lord. Give us that desire. Equip us by your Spirit to give the answers that you have so kindly provided in your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I encourage you? Engage. Engage. Engage your neighbour. Engage your friends. Without Jesus, there is no hope. You be sure your love for them by sharing. Trust God to lead you to different people at different times and be full of courage. Don't be fearful because the Holy Spirit promises He will give you the words to say. But engage. Engage at the golf club. Engage at the pistol club. Engage around coffee tomorrow. Smoko. But engage. Listen. But do so with gentleness and respect. God bless you.